In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 11. Yet one more plague, God tells Moses, one final blow to Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, one decisive display of Yahweh's sovereignty over the world. Moses delivers this message to Pharaoh, but his heart is still hardened. The last plague is coming, the death of the firstborn. After this, God promises that not only will Pharaoh let the people go, he'll beg them to leave. Good morning. Today is Tuesday, November 22nd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is underwritten by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, Listen, they're doing great work for the kingdom. Check them out over at lhfmissions.org. Well, joining us this morning to discuss Exodus chapter 11, please join me in welcoming my guest, the Reverend Dr. Vernon Wint, pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lexington, Kentucky, and missionary at large in Richmond, Kentucky. Dr. Wint, good morning and welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I'm super excited to have you on. I tell you what, you know, we have a, a short passage today, lots to talk about with it. But before we get to that, would you mind taking a few moments? Tell us a little bit about ministry and life at Good Shepherd in Richmond. And what does it mean that you're a missionary at large? Okay, well, thank you for asking. Yeah, I'm uh, serving currently, at, as mentioned, I'm actually in Good Shepherd's office right now in Lexington. Drove up from uh, my placed in Richmond, and uh, this is a church that's in the process of what's called the revitalization, uh, meaning that it's uh, seen better days, and we're recasting the vision here and trying to be a confessional Lutheran church here in uh, Lexington. At the same time, I'm a missionary at large, uh, supported by the Indiana District, the plan of distinctly Lutheran church in Richmond. So I have uh, the blessings of both uh, these situations, and uh, I love people here, and uh, we have some great students at Eastern Kentucky University that uh, I've gotten to know and are part of our mission there and others as well. So um, uh, I never lived in Kentucky before till, uh I moved down here. So this is a, I dreamed of playing basketball here one day, but that was uh, in my younger days. Well, speaking of basketball, I have to bring up that your PhD is in uh, mission, missi, missiology, pardon me, uh, missions, missionary studies, and your dissertation is entitled, and it's probably been a while since you've thought about it, but the application of the Christian faith by small college Christian American athletes within the sport of basketball. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. That's an intriguing and very niche topic. Yes, well, that, you had to be specific, so that's one of the things I had to do, was be very specific, and um, funny you ask that, because, uh, you know, Jason Iwan, he's uh, one of the librarians at uh, Concordia, and they were uh, doing a tour of the library with some, I don't know, some high school students or whoever at uh, Walter, whatever. Well, I forgot what they name it now, but it used to be the Walter Library. Um, much better library than when I was a student there. But anyway, they uh, saw this dissertation, and one of the, the guides says, look, somebody wrote a dissertation on basketball. Um, but actually, it's, it's a little bit more <laughs> complex than just writing on basketball. So it's oh, actually sure. talking about the uh, culture of basketball, and how uh, a distinctly Lutheran understanding of grace can apply to uh, any sport, but particularly our lives as well. 
because a Calvinistic approach would be that you're predestined to uh, be a star by your height or your quickness. Nothing you can do about it, uh, no matter how hard you work. And, of course, the Arminian approach is um, I make the decision to make, you know, be the best basketball player, work hard. Um, and I failed at uh, being – I got my mom's genes, so I wasn't predestined to be a basketball player. <laughs> I was pretty good. I worked hard, uh, was, but I got cut. Yeah, my junior year in high school. It's, it's a, actually, I wrote a book on this. Uh, in uh, uh, I wrote a book on my hometown basketball player called Melvin McLaughlin, but uh, is oh. it's called Sweet Shot: The Best Life of Legacy of Melvin Sugar McLaughlin, best shooter I've ever seen in my life, um, long distance shooter, and um, he was my my idol. And I, again, but um, anyway, so long story short, yeah. So I, I I got an opportunity to share my testimony too. How it, uh, actually, long run, uh, I was called in the ministry so to speak, or internal call uh, while coaching basketball at the University Basketball Camp in Indiana. And um, I was pre-med like my three older brothers, and my dad's a retired physician also. So uh, blessed to um, have that opportunity to, to share, and I, I get to minister to athletes all over the country and all over the world, literally, uh, through this little dissertation that I wrote. I think that's just... I think that's just amazing. You know, um, <laughs> as someone who's written a dissertation before, you know, it's it's people don't understand that you have to essentially come up with something new. You have to contribute to the body of knowledge. And in theology, you have to be very careful, right, Pastor, when you come up with yeah. something new, because if it's too new, mm-hmm. then it's probably heresy. So exactly. you have exactly. to yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. you have to get these niche topics. And isn't it amazing the way that God works through things like that? That's wonderful. I, I, yeah. I just Googled your book. I'm going to have to check it out, too. Well, I'll tell you oh, what, let's you. get yeah. into our topic for the day, though. But before sure. we dive in, would you start us off in prayer? Hey, you know, I'm going to pray. This is kind of maybe unusual, but I'm going to pray the prayer uh, that uh, we pray for uh, when we pray during the Holy Baptism Liturgy because the hard-hearted Herod Pharaoh is mentioned in this prayer. So I'm going to say a general prayer for all of the baptized. Let us pray. Almighty and eternal God, according to your strict judgment, you condemned the unbelieving world through the flood. That according to your great mercy, you preserved believing Noah and his family, eight souls in all. You drowned hard-hearted Pharaoh and all his hosts in the Red Sea that led your people, Israel, through the water on dry ground, foreshadowing this washing of your holy baptism. Through the baptism in the Jordan of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, you sanctified and instituted all waters to be a blessed flood and a lavish washing away of sin. We pray that you would behold all the baptized according to your boundless mercy and bless us with true faith by the Holy Spirit, that through this saving flood all sin in us, which has been inherited from Adam, which we ourselves have committed since, would be drowned and die. Grant that we be kept safe and secure in the holy ark of the Christian church, being separated from the multitude of unbelievers, and serving your name at all times with a fervent spirit and a joyful hope, so that with all believers in your promise, we would be declared worthy of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, our text for today is quite short as compared to some of the other chapters in Exodus, but it's it's quite important. It also gives us a little bit of time to reflect on everything that's been leading up to this moment, look at what's coming next, and of course, you know, pick apart where Moses, uh, what Moses is talking about here. So what I'm going to do, Pastor, if it's all right with you, I'm going to read sure. just the whole text, and then we'll go you know, verse by verse or however you would like um, after that. Mm-hmm. So I'll be reading chapter 11, verses 1 through 10 from the English Standard Version. The Lord said to Moses, 
Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. After that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. All right, that is our text, brother. Um, you know, t take it wherever you'd like to. Maybe catch us up, or uh, you know, just however you'd like to start. Let's we'll get the conversation. Sure. Going. Yeah. Yeah. Wait. That's. Uh... You know, this is a lot of meat for just one little chapter. It looks like, oh, this little chapter, why is this here? And it really is a, a culmination of all the plagues. And um, this, as you said, this is the last straw, kind of pun intended, because, you know, the, we had to make straws out of bricks. Um, <laughs> That's right. But this, this is the last straw. And, and it kind of uh, is a reminder of all of us that we have a little bit of Pharaoh in all of us. And as Luther said, the life is continual repentance. Um so there's a lot of application, not just for us as um, you know, readers of this, but also put ourselves perhaps in a, a feral position or perhaps in a Moses position where we're, we're kind of frustrated because we're, we're, we're pleading people to repent. And as you see at the end of this chapter, he gets, he gets angry, <laughs> um, righteous anger. Say, Yo, here's the last plague. You want your son to die? Uh, you want all these people to die? And, and just see the hardness of the heart. And we can uh, feel that way also when we're, calling people to repentance and um, out there all these plagues and this is the last uh, final straw and we wonder sometimes what's the last straw because you know that God wants all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth and uh, like the prodigal son come home and so we pray that uh, those who are wayward and erring that their hearts would not be hardened um, to God's grace and forgiveness and uh, hear the law so they can turn from their sin and repent and come to Jesus. And so there's a lot of meat in this chapter. So um, I don't know where to begin if you want to be um, Actually, if you, if you go back to uh, chapter 3, uh, even when Moses was called by God, he predicted this was going to happen. Uh, he's going to do all, I'm gonna do all these uh, wonders and uh, strike the Egyptians with all these wonders for them uh, that he will let you go. Pharaoh will try to let you go. And uh, remember Moses saying, who am I to go to Pharaoh? And, of course, God is the one that is showing him sovereign over all these gods of Egypt. 
and it's uh, even that the people are, you know, the Egyptians are amazed, and they're, they're actually, uh, we'll get into that later on, how they, they bow down to Moses and, in front of Pharaoh, and it's, it's just a whole uh, deep chapter here. So, Well, now you mentioned back in chapter 3, you know, God had revealed to Moses that essentially um, Moses, I'm sorry, the Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened, uh, and we could talk about, you know, God hardening it or Pharaoh hardening his own mm-hmm. heart or the both and. And we've talked about that a couple times as it keeps getting brought up, but it's important. But at the same mm-hmm. time, he tells him, and it's not going to work. You know, I'm sending you to do this task. Go up to the king of all creation, you know, from their point of view, and 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 ask him to let all of his free labor go with nothing in exchange. Um, he's not going to do that, Yahweh tells Moses. But Moses Go tell him anyway. Now, God has a plan, and we know that God's going to, you know, spoiler alert, God's going to let them go. And in fact, this very chapter lets us know again that not only will Pharaoh let him go, but he's going to beg him to leave. But, but you know, and we've talked about this a couple times too, but boy, what does it feel like to go and do God's will, you know, wondering in our life whether or not, you know, we're going to see the benefits of it. In this case, Moses knows for a fact that every time he appears before Pharaoh, it's not going to work because God's told him as much. You know, it will work eventually, but each time he knows that Pharaoh is going to harden his heart. So, yeah, there's this frustration on behalf of Moses where, you know, he leaves in hot anger. But, but yeah, that must have been a tough thing to deal with. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, we deal with it as, as pastors, we deal with this too. And um, maybe our. In a sense, our own sinful nature, we see ourselves, as I said, there's a little bit of fear on all of us. So, uh, But uh, the good news is every Sunday, uh, most every Sunday, uh, we confess that we are sinners and need God's forgiveness. And as Luther says in the first of his 95 theses, the Christian life is one of continual repentance. And that's really the, the grace of God, calling us back home uh, from these. So our hearts don't get hardened. And, and uh, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin that we may be, um, you know, receive Jesus. And he's the true, you know, the true deliverer of sins. Moses, as you know, was not able to do that uh, through the law. Uh, Joshua did that as Jesus is the true Joshua. That's all symbolic there, of course, um, pointing to Jesus. Uh, but definitely the law convicts, and it's there for a purpose, um, that second use of law especially, uh to see our sins, and we're repentant. Um, interesting enough, um, and I, 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 I use his name, I'll use his name anonymously, but um, this weekend I received a phone call from a young man. Uh, it was a voicemail at our church, actually, here at Good Shepherd, and he was in tears, and he was ashamed because uh, he had gone through a sex change transition. And we had just been talking about this in Bible study. We're going to have to face this one day where people come to our churches uh, where their bodies have been marred. And are we going to accept them as repentant sinners or are we going to reject them? And uh, he came to church on Sunday and he, he, he obviously doesn't appear to be uh, as manly as he did before. But he was accepted here at Good Shepherd and he said, I'll come back. Uh, he's going to be back on Wednesday and go through instruction with small catechism with me. And that's a sign of somebody that's uh, repentant of their sins. And I said, you know what? You've got a testimony to share. God's going to use you. And uh, you're a, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. 
So yeah, I think I you know in his case, you know his particular sin um, is one of well we could talk about the specific sins in terms of of selfishness or not trusting in the Lord. Of course, it also depends on where he was spiritually before. He could just be yeah. a victim of the sinfulness of this world. But here's my point. Mm-hmm. My point is his sin, so to speak, he's carrying visibly in his body. And of course there's forgiveness and it's wonderful that, you know, that we, we as hopefully all our congregations are going to break this mold that people think of Christians as being cold and intolerant. It's not that we're cold and intolerant. It's that we hold ourselves to the same standard we hold others. And that is to reject those sins. But here's my point. He's wearing that visually on his body. Could you imagine if all of our sins were somehow worn on our body in such a way that people could immediately identify them, if that was the yeah. case, if we were, if we had a, a big rash for every sin we committed or our, our skin turned a bright purple for every sin we committed, uh, I think we'd be a lot, a whole lot more tolerant of people and accepting of people when they come in repentance and say, listen, I'm admitting that I have a sin. So I think that's a beautiful mm-hmm. story. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing, well, that, um, you brought this out before, I'm sure the distinction, and this comes up again, obviously, the distinction of the, the Passover and the, the firstborn dying and the Israelites being delivered from this, of course. But the distinction sometimes you'll hear in the prosperity gospel is, uh, well, if you're a Christian, you're going to prosper. And if you're not a Christian, if you're, you're living in sin, you're not. And that, that that's, not, that's not the distinction that Christ has given us. The distinction is we're bearing the cross. Everybody suffers in this life. Um, we live in a sinful world. So the non-Christian is going to get cancer just as a Christian is going to get cancer. But the difference is we are suffering for being a Christian, not just suffering. And that's where we identify ourselves with Christ. If you suffer with him in this life, you'll be glorified in the next. And so it's not, it's not over. The victory's at hand. Well, you know, in this text, you know, Moses is, you know, this— uh, he's been going. He's been standing before the Pharaoh. He's been he's been struggling against his own insecurities. He's been struggling to stand up, knowing that things won't look the way uh, that things won't go his way, at least not for a time. He must have been pretty relieved here in chapter eleven when the Lord tells him, when Yahweh tells him, just one more plague. But then this harkens back to chapter four, verse twenty three. And he says, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So God has been completely transparent about what he's going to do. And we finally Mm -hmm. now have this warning. But here's the question I have for us to consider. So the firstborn, the death of the firstborn is going to affect not just Pharaoh, but every Egyptian family. Well, really, everybody who doesn't you know, submit to God's will. So, you know, the people of he, the Hebrews have this, you know, instruction for the Passover, which we won't necessarily get to today. But we we have all of these people. They were they responsible for Pharaoh's obstinance? Were they responsible for for Pharaoh uh, not not hardening his heart against Yahweh and not letting the people go? Uh, are they are they uh, being uh, uh, you know, are they culp- culpable because they just they didn't do anything to stand up for the Hebrews? They enjoyed the free labor of these slaves and never said anything. You know, I guess what I'm looking at is people might look at this and say, you know, God punishing all these people just doesn't seem right from our point of view. What would you say to that? 
That's a very good question. Now, um, you'll notice, uh, where is it, where um, they're giving uh, every man and woman uh, of her neighbor for silver and gold. And there's a, a giving of gold and silver and how God gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So I believe, and this is my uh, behind-the-story thing, I believe that the Egyptians um, witnessed the Israelites, um, if they were true followers of Yahweh, and they heard of the true God from them, hopefully from their neighbor. So they had an opportunity, possibly, to put blood on their doorposts in following the Passover with the people of Yahweh. So there was a time for them also to repent. Now, obviously, living in a, uh, a feral, we, we live in a this representative democracy in America, is much different than living in a, a kingship or a pharaoh where he's treated like a god. So it had to be really, really challenging to become a believer in Yahweh with all these multitudes of gods. But yet... I believe that there was an opportunity for them to do that. I suppose that makes sense. You know, he's saying these things in the presence of other people. Other people would have known. You know, Moses' goal is to have the people released and to follow Yahweh. Yahweh's goal is certainly to have glory over the gods of Egypt. And if the people at some point must be getting very frustrated with their gods, and they must be getting very frustrated mm -hmm. with Pharaoh because of all of these plagues, and their own gods and their own king can't seem to do anything about them, which ultimately, I believe, is the point. So certainly they have everything – they have every reason to lose faith, hope, and trust in their king and gods. And if this god of the Hebrews is more powerful, even if they don't fully understand it, turning to him is, is certainly an option for them. Yes, yes. We, we often see that in the Bible. Um, that you'll see, in fact, Jesus says genealogy, as you said, genealogy is filled with, um, you know, Gentiles, uh, people that weren't of uh, descent of the, the Hebrews and stuff like that. And um, we got, um, oh, I can think of uh, Ruth and so many different characters, Rahab, I mean, go down the line. So I do believe that there is an influence that the Israelites uh, possibly could have had on somebody there. Uh, of course, the scripture doesn't say any Egyptians were saved um, in this instance, but we leave that in God's grace. Too. In verse 3, Moses writes, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. I've often speculated on what it must be like for Moses to be writing these things down by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and have to write things down that involve himself. You know, Proverbs 27 says, let another praise you, not your own mouth, right? So we're not to go around praising ourselves. And here Moses writes, uh, the man Moses was very great at the end of Egypt. Um, <laughs> certainly he's writing that from the perspective of what God is doing in terms of helping people, you know, release the, the Hebrews. Uh, and also, you know, we get some background on why they're giving up all their silver and gold and stuff like that. But at the same time, it kind of reminds me of maybe when in Deuteronomy, it tells us the death of Moses. So who wrote that down, Moses? So, you know, maybe there is a little interjection from scribes or something like that here. But either way, 
we see this parenthetical explanation of why every man uh, and woman uh, of the of of the Hebrews are, are told to ask for these jewels and jewelry and silver. But one one commentator I read said something to the effect of, and I don't I don't know about this, said something to the effect of this is payment for their years of servitude. What do you think about that statement? Uh, yeah, I mean, in a sense, that yeah, is is reparations, so to speak, if you want to use that term. Uh, but at the same time, another commentator I read also said, "Well, guess what? They use this uh, jewelry for later on. The Israelites made this for <laughs> making gods." So <laughs> um, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So, so I mean, you um, would think on the one hand, well, this gives them some, you know, some cash. Some they get some liquid assets so they can trade right. as they're wandering in the deserts. But you know, even this blessing which God has given them, He's He's the one who gave the people, the Egyptians, uh, to the favor. But they misuse it later, and, and I think that does speak yeah. to our abilities to misuse the gifts of God. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, it talked about the influence of the uh, Israelites on the Egyptians. What about the Egyptians on the Israelites too? So, um, as we know, that um, all of them, including Moses, uh, didn't enter the Promised Land. That generation. Uh, in fact, I'm preaching on Psalm 95 tomorrow, so coincidentally, for uh, our Thanksgiving Eve service. But um, so this this Passover is such a huge part of the story of God's people and continues to be only serve the Lord's Supper, too, because it's just a part of that that story that is ultimately fulfilled in the firstborn uh, of all people, uh, God's only begotten Son, Jesus, who offered up his life for the sins of the world that the death may pass over us. So it's a whole, uh, there's a lot of depth in this story, for sure. Absolutely. We have in verse 4, you know, Moses says, thus says the Lord, and he gives this this indication, this threat of the final plague that's coming. And he's saying this to Pharaoh, but didn't we read in the last chapter that Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, take care to never see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And then even Moses says, as you say, I will not see your face again. Is this out of order in terms of these words? Were, were these words you know, written here by Moses, but actually said earlier, or is this another appearance before Pharaoh? That is a good question, too. I, I, different commentators will say that uh, this is a continuation of that uh, chapter type of thing uh, before they finally just depart ways, or it could be just this is the last time that we'll ever you know, be in an, an audience of Pharaoh, a formal audience. Um, so uh, that's um, kind of uh, you interpret it the way you want, but I, I, I do believe that it's kind of like, in a sense, this is the last time I'm going to see you, and then here I'm back again. This is the last time, so it's that it's it's really God's grace that Moses is coming to Pharaoh. Sure. Again. So. Um, well, it's kind of like when I'm when I'm disciplined. I have a 15 year old son, you know, and I'm like, this is the last time yeah. I'm going to tell you to do yeah. this. And then when I have to tell him again, he's like, oh, I thought it was the last time you're going to tell me to do it. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, there's a great. Right, so, um, yeah, I'm oh, sorry for interrupting you. There's a great um, Gary Larson Farside um, cartoon about the, the prodigal son part two, where the father <laughs> says, oh, no, not you again. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thank I tell God you what. Our God is not like that, yeah. 
Well, we'll reflect more on this when we come back. But right now, brother, it's time for a break. So when we come back, Pastor Went and I will keep on going with Exodus chapter 11. We'll both see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boom. And with me today is the Reverend Dr. Vernon Wint, pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lexington, Kentucky, and missionary at large in Richmond, Kentucky. Folks, remember, if you have any questions or comments about today's show, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. I respond to every email I receive, so don't hesitate to write me. Now, Pastor Went, before the break, we were, you know, just getting into the first half of this and how it's going to affect the, the people of Egypt. The, the, the Egyptians themselves are going to pay for Pharaoh's obstinance. But they too, as you said, had the opportunity, or at least we hope they had the opportunity to turn to the Lord. But God's last and final plague is a, a death knell, so to speak, on this institution of slavery that's been going on. His people will be free, just as he predicted. Everything is happening according to God's good and gracious plan, and that in and of itself is very comforting. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, it is. And then, um, see back to this verse, uh, we just left off about midnight is an interesting uh, phrase also, because the Egyptians... Uh, at nighttime, their sun god has departed and, and no longer protecting them in a sense. So even though uh, this uh, the Passover didn't take place until uh, several days later after Moses told people to, about the, making the blood in the lamp on the doorpost, uh, that midnight hour uh, was a very scary time for the Egyptians because their sun god was no longer there. Yeah, well, you know, Ray is the sun god. And Pharaoh is considered the son of Ray, and which mm-hmm. is also why it makes it really – we've been going through, as we've been talking about each plague, which gods of Egypt are being gotten glory over by Yahweh, which ones are being attacked by our god. And you know now we're down to the, some of the chief gods here, and so Ray, the Pharaoh, is the son of Ray, and his son mm-hmm. is the next son of of Ray, which is incredibly important, not only just for you know inheriting the throne, but for their uh, cosmology, for their soteriology, for their understanding of their faith. And so, when God makes this declaration that your firstborn, in this case, the very next son of Ray, will be taken from you, that's 
a big Oh, good. Live. I'm sorry about that. Live, was a little, ladies and gentlemen, little, we're live, so that's fine. That's right. A little live connection issue. Uh, you are in Kentucky. I am in Minnesota. The folks down in St. Louis are in, well, Missouri. So we're trying to make sure we're all connected. Um, oh, I had these uh, absolutely brilliant statements that I was making. You all missed it. It was amazing. Life-changing, really. But I'll go ahead and turn it back to you. What... Uh, yeah. Where do you want to pick up now that we've had this little? Well, so we're, we're talking about the different gods. So now we got not only the the firstborn is uh, you know the firstborn child is being born you know killed uh, that they don't put blood on their posts up to the even the slave girl. Um, we got even the, you know firstborn to the slave girl rather. Uh, I believe that women were spared of that uh, of that. So I, I'm, I'm correct, but uh, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. And getting back to all these gods and goddesses, well, the Egyptians attributed divine characteristics to the animals as well. So, again, it shows how Yahweh is sovereign over all these gods of Egypt. And um, even their household pets and sacred temple animals were, uh, would all be viewed as a calamity to them because of this um, idea that well, these are, these are, some of them are gods in, in animal form. So it really shows God's sovereignty, for sure. Right, and then the next part, he goes, yeah, he goes into about separating the people, you know, the people of Israel and the the Egyptians, and he wants to make this distinction between these are my people, my people who are set apart. Not even the Hebrew actually says, not even a dog shall wag their tongue, but we it's translated to me as via growl, but not even a mm-hmm. dog shall growl against the people of Israel. So God is not only making a point that he's sovereign over all the false gods of Egypt, including the Pharaoh, but he's making a point that these are my people. That certainly speaks mm-hmm. to us today. When we live in a culture where people are uh, going after their own gods, we are wanting to be faithful to our God, and God is going to be glorious, both over the gods of our world and also make us his people or continue to show the world that we're his people. Exactly, exactly. And of course, uh, the, the ultimate uh, leveler of all mankind is death. And that's um, when, I, when I witness a death of a saint, either in the hospital, um, I've been at deathbeds, um, uh, surrounded with Holy Communion sometimes with family members, even though that lifeless body looks like, you know, the devil won, she won or he won, he died in Christ. Just like when Jesus gave up, it's finished, and, and the victory is now begun for this uh, saint. Um, so this, uh, the idea that death has passed over us is just a, a, a huge uh, theme in the Scripture, how sin ultimately results in death. As you know, Romans 6, 3, we say that all the time. And um, how we will live forever and eternity without uh, a fear of death, uh, no more sin and its consequences. So um, that's a, a huge thing in the Bible, for sure. And that, Let's that, talk a little bit about yeah, go, yeah, go ahead. Well, go ahead. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Let's talk a little bit about that distinction. Yeah, the distinction, as I think I alluded this to before, is not that, you know, every Christian is going to be uh, have the, the, the winning sports team or um, be prosperous and healthy and never get sick. The distinction is that we are suffering with the idea that we're suffering with Christ. 
And uh, bearing the mark of the cross, we, we put that on our baptized. You'll receive the mark of the cross on your forehead and upon your heart. And uh, that really, as Jesus says, uh, you're going to suffer. And, and don't be, don't, you know, don't take a bite. Don't be surprised. If the world hates me, they're going to hate you too. And uh, sometimes I think our churches do a disservice. Uh, many evangelicals do this by saying, um, God loves you. has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, the idea that we as Americans think of, well, okay, I'm going to my better life now uh, before I go to heaven. Um, I'm not for suffering. I don't want to suffer either. But Jesus is inviting us to suffer. And, and even especially in this culture we live in, we're living in an anti-Christian world. So it shouldn't take us by surprise that we're living out the Bible very much so by suffering uh, for the gospel's sake. The distinction is not that we don't suffer. The distinction is what we're suffering for. And uh, the distinction that I see in believers is the distinction of our love for God, that the Holy Spirit works in us, and our love for our neighbor. And when I witness uh, the testimony of a, a loved one on their deathbed, and singing spiritual songs, enjoying the liturgy with me, that, to me, is a testimony that distinguishes that person from a non-Christian. Well, and that's beautiful. Not only is there a distinction, but there's a beautiful witness there to those, especially if you're in, say, like a hospice cottage or you are at the nursing home or in a hospital. There are people there who are seeing that witness, nurses and doctors and others. And so the way that we receive death, acknowledge that death is a punishment for sin and it's always bad, but at the same time know that there's more to life than this life, that's such a witness to those in this world who, whether they recognize it or not, are deeply concerned about what happens next. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And even, even our young kids uh, in confirmation class, uh, some of my kids today, uh, so, Pastor, I don't want to be seen like I hate people. I said, no, you, you're by, you know, the kind of the, the woke agenda that they expose to in their public schools. And you don't have to hate them. And it doesn't have to be hate to call out the truth in love and speak the truth in love. Uh, but this is what our society is telling them. So they're, they're also suffering for being a Christian as well. So it's not just those that are deathbed. And, of course, our kids are vulnerable to die just like we are, too. Um, that's Part of life, we see that all the time in, in church, and we see that in the society as well. So it's not like we're just waiting to die. We're we could die any any moment, but we live with the hope of eternity in us. And one of the things I've noticed about the text that we're looking at is that, starting with verse four, when Moses uh, is speaking to Pharaoh, he says, "Thus says says Yahweh, or right? thus saith the Lord," is what I was going to say, and he says, "About midnight." I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and he explains that the firstborn will die. Then, when we get down to verse 8, it's still Moses speaking in the persona, using the words of Yahweh. And all these your servants shall come down to me, presumably Yahweh, and bow down to me, Yahweh. Now, is that, is that, has the person changed, or is that me there, Moses? And then the reason why I ask that is because then it says, after that, I will go out. So is that Moses who's going out with the people? Is that Yahweh, who is in the first person at the very beginning of this message? 
Um, how do you how do you reconcile that? Because it's a little confusing. Are the people bowing down sure. to Yahweh, or are the people bowing down to Moses, or are you going to give me a good Lutheran answer and say both? Or <laughs> both and yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> in a sense, if, if, if the contrast is earlier, if you remember the uh, Moses' own people, they were complaining, "You're you're making us a stink among all the peoples." But now they have a high reverence. For Moses, and in fact, it's a little slight on Pharaoh because Pharaoh is the one that's supposed to be seen as the, the God, of, you know, the, the, the son of God, so to speak, of the people. And yet the people are bowing down to Moses, but I don't think they're bowing down to Moses just because he's Moses. I think they're bowing down to Moses because he's Yahweh's servant. So I would say it's both in this case. Sure. And the servants here, these, your servants, are the Egyptians. Yeah. Because they're the ones who are saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. So, yeah, I, I right. think a, a both and would be appropriate here. But then it says, you know, and he, this is after the text, so this is Moses describing what Moses is doing, and he mm-hmm. went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. That anger, you know, some people will say that there's no such thing as righteous indignation, that anger is anger. Unless you're Jesus flipping over the tables, there's no room for anger. Is this an indication of Moses's sinful anger? Is is this some sort of righteous anger? Um, what do you think? That is a good question. Um, it, it's hard to tell, but I, based on the context, I would say that he is, as we've talked about before, he's gone to Pharaoh how many times? Over and over and over again. So and now he's at, he's warning, if, if you don't repent, the firstborn are going to die. What, what, what more can I warn you about? And so he's he's yeah. frustrated, and uh, I guess that's a righteous anger there also. Um, and maybe he's a little kind of like maybe Elijah <laughs> after, after the, uh, the you know the prophets about Carmel and they always being chased down. I'm the only one left. Like he's not 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 that most the only one left, but he's saying he's not, they're not listening to him. He's not listening to him, and so it's like. So there's, there may be some internal frustration, but I believe it's righteous anger there, too. Now, verses 9 and 10, really, hearken back to the whole scenario, all of the plagues. We've numbered them about 10. There are 10-ish, depending on how you number them. They aren't actually numbered in the Scripture. But verse 9 says, Then Yahweh says to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Well, that harkens back to language in chapter 3 and 7 and 10, Mm -hmm. where he continually tells him that he's not going to listen to you, but there's a purpose so that people can see my power. And then 10 just wraps it up. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and and Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he didn't let the people of Israel go out of his land, at least not yet. But yeah, with verse 9... It kind of it sort of abruptly turns to this reminder that everything that's been happening, and some of it's not been a great time for the Hebrew people either, is because God is working toward this ultimate goal, which is their freedom and salvation. And until then, there's some things they have to endure, whether it be elements of the plagues themselves or just the ire of the Egyptians who are being set apart and having plagues given on them. But, you know, these Hebrews are... The slaves are getting by with nothing. So I think there's a lot of connection there to our life today, too. Yes, 
definitely. Yeah, in fact, uh, we find in Revelation 16, verse 8, um, there's this idea about uh, the judgments after the seven seal of judgment. So there's kind of a uh, idea that um, there is, you know, judgments, and that that's that's really hard to tell sometimes. Um, you know, we can't be like Job's friends, obviously, and say, "Well, God's judging you." But there is a um, idea that whatever I would say, whatever God allows in our lives is ultimately points to Jesus. And whether he prospers us or allows suffering in our lives or brings us to repentance of our sins by the Holy Spirit, the main goal always is to point us to our Savior, and that's the, the work of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. So we can't judge somebody, uh, which uh, kind of the, the weakness of, uh, of the Protestant work ethic that we've grown up in America largely is we look down on the poor and those are prosperous and wealthy. You know, they're, 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 they can cover their sin better than we can. But it's very, very difficult to. Uh, in fact, I, I love the story of Job for that reason. It's just he's um, being faithful in spite of his suffering. And uh, one of my friends uh, said, "Well, I wish they wouldn't have put the end of Job, but actually, the end of Job where he receives twice as much is kind of a picture of what heaven will be like too." So we look forward uh, to the prosperity, of course, and heaven ultimately will last forever and ever. And whatever we enjoy in this life is only temporary. Let's talk a little bit about theodicies. You brought it up. You know, when we look out into the world today and we see everything from natural disasters to personal tragedies, we are quick to sometimes wonder, you know, what does this mean? Is this God mm-hmm. punishing, you know, New Orleans for its casinos while sending hurricanes? But, of course, leaving Las Vegas completely fine. <laughs> or is this, uh, is this, uh, you know, are, are these worse sinners because the tower fell on them than others? You know, we have this idea that on the one hand, we want to let God off the hook to say that God has nothing to do with any of these things. Uh, we're just reading everything into it. You can't fall into that error. But the other error you were talking about is then looking at everything that happens sort of in a charismatic Pentecostal type of way and interpreting everything that happens as some sign from God that needs to be decoded. There is a happy medium, isn't there, Pat? Exactly, yes. And that's where we put our hand to our mouth like Job did. And say, I, 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 who am I? No, I, I can't know God's sovereign ways. That's where the beauty of uh, the Lutheran faith is we start with the cross. That's the known thing. Uh, everything else is... We don't know as much, but we do know that God loves us so much he sent his son to die for us. And to start with sovereignty, as the Calvinists do, is really on shaky ground and, and leaves people uncertain of their salvation, um, leaves people uncertain of how you know, God is working in their life because oh, I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm suffering while God is punishing me. Well, that's not necessarily the case. And, and as I said just moments ago, ultimately God is trying to point us to Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit. Whether we prosper, whether we suffer, whether our lives are so-so, status <laughs> um, quo, um, really that's the Holy Spirit working in our lives to, to bring us to Jesus. The shy member of the Holy Trinity always point us to Jesus as um, the firstborn that really uh, took on our sins and punishment for us. But we do, we do examine our lives, too. And so um, I forgot the passage exactly, um, good Bible reader that I am. Uh, don't suffer for doing wrong. <laughs> um, suffer for doing good. 
So sometimes you bring our own calamities. I mean, this morning I, I, I made two major mistakes this morning. I, I left my backpack back in Richmond, I drive all the way back. Uh, is that God's fault or my disorganization habits fault? And that's, that's not God's fault. And, um, I got on early today because I forgot I was central time. So uh, is that God's fault? No, it's Bird's <laughs> fault. So uh, I mean, we tend to blame God for some of our own stupidity, too. Sure. That is, by the way, First Peter 2.20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, right? Don't go out and look for trouble just so you can say that you're being persecuted. Right, well, exactly. I tell you what, we, we've, we've finished our text for today. Uh, we have a few minutes left in the program, so I would be interested in knowing what happens next. Give us a little insight into what happens next, maybe with the Passover, but then, of course, this final plague coming to pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, this is uh, obviously an interlude before the Passover. So um, I think I mentioned earlier that it doesn't take place the next day the, the midnight is kind of a night thing so there is a, a obviously preparation for the passover uh the israelites are told you'll kill his firstborn uh without blemish put it on the doorpost and um this passover occurs and um finally you know kind of kind of feral it, it, it's interesting he lets them go for a while uh because it's such a severe plague and i want to also emphasize this outcry of the people is uh, one commentator says not just are crying and mailing for death they might be crying out to the gods of Egypt as well deliver me deliver me and comparing to the Israelites who are crying out to God to deliver them from their slavery in, in Egypt so um, kind of a contrast there as well but uh, yes yeah, so we get into um, you know, kind of what's going to happen in the Passover and how God ultimately delivers them and uh, as a Praying our baptism prayer, uh, you know, it parts the Red Sea and John's hard-hearted Pharaoh and his army. Um, I love those words because it reminds us of the hard-heartedness of our own uh, old Adam that we need to drown every day as well. Excellent. Well, I'll tell you what, brother, I apologize for the connection issues we had today, no but I'm so thankful that you were able to join us, and I'm glad we were able to get reconnected before everything was uh, all done. <laughs> Um, I'd like to thank my guest. My honor to represent Kentucky, too, by the way. No, say that again? It was my honor to represent Kentucky. It was my honor to represent Kentucky. That's great. That's great. Yeah, so uh, what he's talking about is, you know, we've had so many guests from across the Senate here, and, you know, I thought it might be nice. I think all the hosts have this idea at some point. It would be nice to have a guest from every state in the union. And so I'm up to, I think, about 39 states of the 50 uh, that will be represented at least between now and the end of the year. And you're here for Kentucky, which is great. <laughs> and I have one uh, one coming from Korea, which I'm not sure uh, <laughs> connects to awesome. that. That's my, that's my wife's scheme. Oh, wonderful. Well. Yeah. yeah. Oh. oh, that's great. Yeah, so you've done a I'm lot of missionary-type work then. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, brother, I do thank you for joining us this morning. Folks, this has been the Reverend Dr. Vernon Wynn, pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lexington, Kentucky, and he's also a missionary at large in Richmond, Kentucky. Brother, pastor, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank, thank you. you. Blessings on all of your ministry. You too. Folks, thank you. Honor to be on. God bless. <laughs>
Thank you. And folks, thank you, too, for joining us today. Tomorrow, we're going to move into the first half of Chapter 12 and the Passover, as the pastor gave us a little bit of insight into. The following day, which is actually Thanksgiving Day, we'll still be on the air with a pre-recorded session covering the second half of Chapter 12, The Final Plague. These are important chapters. We see here God lay the foundation for, for Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the blood of the Lamb, which causes the death to pass over us. It also, of course, points to the Lord's Supper. Lots of good stuff coming up in the next couple of days. If you can't catch it live, be sure to check it out online. You can go to kfuo.org forward slash thy strong word. Well, folks, until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.